Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Earlier this year, India surpassed China to become the most populous country in the world. And with the rise in its population, coupled with an increase in their industrial output, India's energy consumption is growing fast as well. So how is India's energy system changing? And are renewable energy auctions being effective in making their grid cleaner? Have the structures put in place by the Modi government created the necessary incentives to move away from things like coal? On today's show, I speak with Rohit Gadre, who's based in BNEF's New Delhi office, and he covers these sorts of topics in detail in his research. We go through things like the current structure of India's energy market. We also talk about the domestic independent power producers and global companies that are bidding in these renewable energy auctions. And then, of course, India's involvement in the global race to net zero. I thought you may also be interested to know that BNEF is a network provider of the B20 taking place in India later this year. For those who are not familiar, the B20 is the official G20 dialogue, but for the global business community. On the 24th of August, BNEF will be hosting our annual New Delhi Summit, and it'll take place the day before the official B20 meetings kick off. So for those who may already be traveling to the B20 or want to view the event remotely, you can find out more about it at about.bnef.com forward slash summit. You'll be able to see the agenda and speakers for this and other upcoming summits taking place around the world, as well as videos from prior ones. I'll also include the link in the show notes so you can easily find it there. If you like this podcast, also make sure you subscribe and you'll receive alerts to future episodes. Also, consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as it does help other people discover the show. And if you're on Twitter and you'd like to subscribe to at podcasts, you'll be able to find out about new episodes of Switched On and other Bloomberg podcasts. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we have a complete disclaimer at the end of the show. And now let's speak with Rohit about India's energy system. Hi, Rohit. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Dana. Pleasure being here. So I think this is the first time we've done a truly country-focused episode. And so we're going to try and see how much content we can cover in the time that we've got, which is an ambitious task, given that the country that we're here to talk about is India, which just recently became officially the world's most populated country and certainly has a complex but extremely fascinating energy system. So I look forward to learning a few things from you today. And I guess let's start off by talking about the current state of play. So could you describe what the energy system looks like in India today? It's a very big topic, but let's just start with where we are today. So I'll give you a high-level overview of the sort of demand and supply situation on the power side that we have. So demand for electricity is growing very quickly. In fact, last year, electricity demand grew by nearly 10%, and this is expected to continue. So that's a lot of new demand for electricity. And as you said, India is the world's most populous country, but the population is still growing. The economy is growing. And almost every household is now connected to the electricity grid. So 
having said that the per capita consumption of electricity in the country is very low it's about one third of the world's average and about one fifth of china's so that just gives you a sense of how much more power demand could grow in india now just going to the supply side right it is dominated by coal so about 3/4 of the electricity generated last year came from coal fired power plants but having said that almost every megawatt of new capacity being added now is either wind or solar so while the legacy assets are mostly coal new additions that we are seeing are wind and solar and a lot of that has to do with the targets so there was a 2022 target of 175 gigawatt which not surprisingly was missed but i hope we can come back to talk more about that and now looking forward there is a 2030 target and i just want to say here that look in india a lot of announcements are made they are not official targets the nationally determined contribution or the climate pledge made officially is quite simple it says that by 2030 the country will have 500 gigawatts of non fossil fuel capacity which is hydro wind solar nuclear all of that and the long term goal is to be net zero by 2070 so that's about 50 years away so the goal is in terms of total gigawatts as opposed to in terms of a percentage of the overall system which then brings us to this well so you so you initially stated that demand is going up year on year what is the primary reason or set of reasons that demand is increasing it's a multitude of reasons put together so it's a developing country that's getting richer so as you have more households and certainly more people in the country there is a lot of cooling demand for example there are a lot more household appliances that are getting used a lot of small and medium industries and then on the other side the government is pushing for growth from the manufacturing sector which is a heavy user of electricity so that's what's driving growth currently but moving forward from apart from all these reasons it's also increasing electrification so a greater reliance on electricity compared to say other fuels be it oil gas be it biomass traditional biomass and the reason is also one of self sufficiency so the country wants to have more of its energy produced within the country and india does not have that level of oil and gas reserves so it is going to be electricity possibly green hydrogen if this is to be achieved so you reference the legacy part of the power system that actually really was quite reliant historically on coal and that new build is greener cleaner technologies but with this existing coal infrastructure is this something that the country is looking to wind down in order to reduce their overall emissions or is it really just about building new capacity on top of that i think it's the latter because really retiring coal at this stage would make it very difficult to supply the country's power needs and as a developing economy it is nearly impossible to have that level of solar and wind growth to meet your power needs if you start to wind down assets and that is part of the reason why the net zero target is a 2070 goal rather than say a 2051 like most countries or even a 2060 target but what happens over time is that the newer coal plants getting built are more efficient technology so that should help emission factors come down and once you start to build more wind and solar then obviously the share in the generation also starts to change when you say more efficient technology are they embracing ccs ccus or are they looking is there something else that i might be missing it's super critical ultra super critical coal plants so problem with ccs is that 
all said and done at the current moment it is an expensive technology and india cannot afford to have high le- electricity prices at the moment and so ccs perhaps might come into play in the 2030s once it is proven once there are a few projects that do it economically but at the moment we are not seeing the power sector using ccs at all so you reference certain goals for the future so one out to 2030 and then a net zero target for 2070 which is kind of the furthest out that i've heard i mean i believe china is 2060 and then many other places are 2050 which is more aligned to where we need to be from what the ipcc is telling us on net zero targets is there a 2050 goal of any kind in terms of percentages even if it's not net zero so there is no 2050 goal although certain bureaucrats have come out and said that look by 2047 we want to be self sufficient the prime minister has said we want to have all of our energy made in india but i think that's coming from a very different perspective of more of the geopolitical angle rather than a climate change angle now my personal take on this is that currently it's been set to 2070 if technology costs were to come down faster than expected if we are to have technology breakthroughs or if there is some financing commitments from the developed world then 2070 leaves room for the government to then bring it to say 2060 65 something earlier something more aligned with what the world needs so you reference that first of all the country is very interested in having independent energy sources so wind and solar are coming to the fore but truly they are part of global supply chains and you also reference that india is looking at increasing their manufacturing is there any overlap there in terms of actually manufacturing some of the equipment that will be used in the wind and solar industry or will they be as reliant on foreign sources of equipment in order to get these projects off the ground going forward i think that's a great question and it's quite topical with all the discussions in the us even in europe for example around manufacturing now let's just separate the wind and solar sectors for a bit because the wind sector a lot of the components are already made in the country so you have vestas and the siemens and the gees of the world that make turbines in india so that sector is is sort of okay with domestic manufacturing solar is the one that was heavily reliant on imports especially for modules and that was seen as a kind of opportunity to make more in india also aligned with the broader perspective i talked of of manufacturing in india so there are various measures being taken to reduce the dependence on imports and a big one that i'll talk about is this subsidy scheme it's called a production linked incentive or in simple words it's giving a little bit of money depending on your sales of india made goods and that has a total of 3 billion dollars billion with a capital b on offer and there are a lot of factories coming online so there is close to 50 gigawatt of new solar panel manufacturing that should come online in the next 3 years so the expectation or the hope of the policy is that you will have less dependence on imports now all this sounds fine it's the fact of the matter is that if you make panels in the country then you are having to import some of the upstream components from somewhere else so it's not totally self reliant yet but it is a move up towards that goal what could you do if your data was working for you and not against you with bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move Our data is made for more. 
so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. So a commonly used means by which to get more clean energy or, I mean, actually energy installed on any grid at this point in time is to look at auctions. And India certainly has relied on auctions in order to increase the amount of projects that are actually being launched. What is the current situation, though? Because there have been high years and actually 2022 was not the best year in the auction space for India specifically. So first of all, I guess, what happened in 2022 for India's clean energy auctions? And how are things starting to shake out as we're getting into 2023? You're right in that India has really made the auctions a successful mechanism of the growth of wind and more so solar capacity in the last seven, eight odd years. Now, the beauty of the auctions has been that they have been transparent, they have been fairly standardized and clear, and they have allowed all sorts of participants to come in, whether it's local companies, foreign companies, anyone and everyone. So that's really helped push down the prices of wind and solar, and that has created a cycle of increasing demand or acceptance of these technologies. Now, what happened last year perhaps was an anomaly because auction volumes dropped. Now, it might be a multitude of reasons coming together to do with interest rate hikes, to do with certain buyers of power not really looking to buy lots of renewables, certain agencies waiting and taking a stock of where they want to go with the auctions or sort of waiting for a broader policy from the government. What has happened in 2023 is, is quite heartening. So in the month of April alone, there were close to 5 gigawatt of new wind and solar capacity awarded through auctions, which is quite a lot. Just to put it in context, I think all of Europe in the first quarter did 5 gigawatts through auctions. Uh, India in the month of April did very close to 5 gigawatts through auctions. And the government has also raised its ambitions on the auctions front. So now it says it wants to do 50 gigawatt of auctions every year. And looking back, annually, we have had about 12 to 15 gigawatts auctioned. So it's a 3x that we are looking at now. So the hope in the industry is that this will really act as a goal or a target that will spur more activity and that will really get things rolling again, even faster than they were before. And do you believe that auctions will continue to be one of, or if not the largest policy mechanism in order to actually encourage the rollout of clean energy capacity in the future? I certainly think they will be one of the major means and like I said, because they have been transparent, because they have been successful and because they are well understood, I think all the stakeholders, whether it's the government, whether it's the participating companies, are all quite familiar and happy with how the auctions have worked. Which just to take, just just as an aside, India has had a checkered history with auctions. Like there have been scams on the telecom auction side, on the coal auction side. And it's very heartening to see that on the renewable side, things have worked spooky. Now, coming back to where we see that growth Auctions is certainly one, but the other area of renewables growth is going to be demand from corporations or what we call commercial industrial customers who want to procure wind and solar power directly for their own use and for their own reasons. And that's a market that's also picking up quite fast. And we expect more activity to happen on that front as well. So what are those reasons? Because I can see from the government standpoint how they're looking at auctions and then they're also looking at targets and wanting to deliver those on the global scale. They are the hosts of the G20 this year. So this is definitely something where they're in the center of the limelight right now on a number of different fronts on the world stage. What are the companies, though, operating in India? What's their interest and incentive in order to 
encourage this sort of rollout? So let's look at what are the motivations that companies have and what does the market look like? A lot of Indian companies now have some flavor of net zero decarbonization kind of target. And a lot of investors are paying closer attention to the ESG performance of these companies. And presumably renewables is a relatively easy way to get up to speed on your at least the E part of it. So it's a mix of pressure from the supply chain, from your investors, and also being prepared for the future because everyone recognizes the fact that going green is where the future lies. Now, an additional factor pushing companies is that the market regulator in India, the capital market regulator, is requiring listed companies to make even more ESG-related disclosures. So there's, again, pressure from the regulatory side. But most importantly, Dana, I think it's about the money because new wind and solar in most states now is cheaper to procure than to buy electricity from the grid. So as a company, it is a no-brainer now that you're looking at options for this kind of direct procurement or power purchase agreements rather than stick to what you have been doing for the longest time. Well, let's then dig in a little bit. You mentioned ESG criteria, so environmental, social, and governance, which I would say if I have to boil it down to its most simple definition, it really is the language with which companies and those in the finance community communicate to one another regarding how they are delivering on certain environmental, social, or governance standards in a numerical sense. So we at BNEF focus more on the E end of things. And as we look at that, Let's talk about the, first of all, those who are financing the projects. So if you could give me a bit of an understanding on where the financing is coming from, and then additionally, what their exposure and interest is in ESG. Financing is is definitely something that's changed very quickly in the last five years, and there's a lot more activity on that front. Now, let's break it down into the equity financing side and the debt financing side. On the equity side, there's a bunch of different investors. There's the domestic conglomerates, your Adanis and the Tatas uh, and the Aditya Birlas, names that an Indian audience will quickly recognize who are now entering the renewable sector. Then there are your oil and gas companies, whether domestic or global. So you have BP, Shell, Total Energies, who are looking at this as an opportunity as a part of their broader transition or broader play at diversification. You also have a lot of foreign fund managers who, again, are driven purely by the size of the opportunity and the market interest that exists in India. And then finally, you have a lot of foreign utilities. So there are companies from Europe, there are companies from Southeast Asia who are looking to bring in their expertise of project development into the Indian context. So that's the sort of few big classes of equity investors we have. And that's brought in a lot of expertise as well in terms of the financial engineering, in terms of how the equity is structured and how returns are generated. On the debt side, traditionally, a lot of coal-fired plants were funded by public sector banks in India, a sort of government-owned commercial banks. For renewables, it's a lot more diversified. We have had debt come in from foreign banks. We have debt coming in from Indian banks. And there are also green bonds being issued very commonly now. In fact, I'm just working on a piece looking at what's happened in the last six, seven years, and it's more than $40 billion of bonds that have gone into clean power projects. So that's, again, an interesting space because bonds are very well suited to these sort of infrastructure projects where they are very capex heavy, but then you have regular cash flows and bondholders love that. Once the asset is commissioned, they are perfectly suited to having payouts at regular intervals. If you had to describe the state of financing of clean energy projects in India right now, would you say that 
it is a appealing market for investors and the companies are flooding in? Or has there been a cooling as of late? Because there has been a cooling in other parts of the world due to raising interest rates and other factors. Is it at the scale and pace needed in order to meet not just 2070 goals, which are very far away, but 2030 goals? The sort of interest that the capital markets or the financial players have in India's renewables has held. And the reason is that if you look across developing markets, India presents one of the largest opportunities. So all the banks, all sorts of money managers want to be present in this market. So we don't see a dearth of capital being available for funding projects. When we speak to people, the common refrain is that it's not a lack of capital. It's a lack of good projects or bankable projects. And that's what's holding back the market really, because there is enough money which has ESG mandates attached to it, which is looking to diversify away from certain markets. And there are enough ways of raising capital either through the domestic or international markets. Now, it's right that in the last year, interest rates have gone up, not just in India, but across the world which has raised the cost of capital for renewable energy projects as well. So yes, in the short run, projects are more expensive than they were, say, two years ago. But then you look at the long period that these assets operate, 25 years, 30 years. And what Indian power producers have done very well is they sort of have these structures of regular refinancing of assets where three, four, five years later, you get a fresh loan and then presumably rates are lower. You sort of have a mix of equity and debt. You try to mix in different forms of debt in order to lower your cost of capital. And so I think that expertise will really be quite helpful in times when not just interest rates have gone the other way, but even the rupee has depreciated quite sharply. That has also hurt Indian IPPs. Well, and let's talk about those Indian IPPs in a little bit more. So it's a competitive market. Can you explain a little bit more how, first of all, what those companies are and how they interact with one another, just so we have a better understanding of the Indian independent power producers and what they're up against? So again, several different types of players in the market. You have your pure play renewable IPPs or companies that are focused exclusively on building wind and solar projects. And a lot of these companies have come into existence in the last decade. Then you have your conventional power companies who have been in India's power sector for quite some time and who over the last five, six years have recognized solar and wind as areas of new growth. And then you have your foreign utilities. I mentioned the ones from Europe, Southeast Asia, who are present in this market. And finally, you have, I would say, asset owners or money managers who are not really into project development as such, but who view themselves more as long-term asset holders, who are quite comfortable taking on assets once they're commissioned. And so there is that class of investors as well. Now, these companies compete very strongly, whether it comes to new projects, whether it comes to buying portfolios or buying assets. And the market is, is in a very dynamic state because you have companies exiting because that's their strategy. You have new companies entering depending on where they want to expand their operations. So one of the companies that's quite important to the Indian energy market is Adani Green. They actually have a stated objective of becoming one of the world's, if not the world's largest renewable energy company by 2030. And their parent company, Adani, has been in the news a fair amount lately regarding some allegations around some accounting irregularities, let's put it that way. If you want to dig in in a little bit more detail, Bloomberg News has covered this in detail, and I would suggest reading an article there. But Let's talk about Adani Green and really 
what's happening with their parent company cause them to slow down in any way? And do we think it'll have an impact on what's actually happening in renewables rollout in India? And kind of, can you explain just what this company is and their role in this market? Let's address the elephant in the room, Dana, because everyone's being talking of Adani. So let's see what happens in the renewable side. So Adani Green is one of the listed companies under the Adani Group, and it is a company that develops and owns wind and solar assets, as simple as that. And in the name, it says that. So Adani Green, of course, was part of the allegations made, but we don't see it having affected their portfolio yet because the allegations were made on the financial or the accounting side of it. The portfolio or the projects that they have remain in place, and almost all of them have firm long-term offtake agreements in place, which means the money should keep rolling in. Now, Adani Green has reported soaring profits for the quarter ending March. It has a big pipeline of projects that are under development or under construction. And so on that front, it's the company seems okay. Now, looking at what is its role in the broader Indian renewables energy sector, you're quite right in that they are the largest owner of wind and solar assets in the country at the moment, and they have bigger plans. But having said that, their share in the market is only 8 to 10%, which means it is not a case of a monopoly, a duopoly, or two or three big companies pulling ahead of which Adani is one. And so even if the worst were come to pass, we don't see it affecting the long-term growth story of India Renewables. Because like I said, there is enough diversity in the investors, in the developers who are already operating within India. And so we don't see the long-term prospects of India Renewables being linked to just one company. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So we've discussed some of the companies operating in this space. We've discussed financing and we've discussed auctions and policy incentives. And also some of the policy incentives then being focused on becoming domestic energy producers. And also the fact that now as the most populous country in the world, what about jobs? You referenced manufacturing and how India is actually looking at this. But, you know, renewable energy in other countries, let's say the United States, for example, and the Inflation Reduction Act is in many respects very much focused on jobs. Is the Indian government also looking at the jobs that this sector could create? And is that really front and center or is it more of a side conversation to a wider conversation around providing energy access to such a large number of people? Dana, I think it goes hand in hand because there are multiple objectives behind the idea of having more manufacturing in India. So it's a combination of being self-reliant in that you are not affected by policies in certain countries or certain supply chain issues. And it's also about creating jobs because that's an imperative in a country that is relatively young, that has a growing population and where jobs are necessary or the jobs are required. So manufacturing is going to drive the growth of those jobs. Now, what is India doing in terms of manufacturing in the clean tech sector. I spoke briefly about the solar side. There are similar schemes already in place for manufacturing electric vehicles and for battery storage systems in India. So that is the PLI scheme or the subsidies handed out for Make in India. 
the industry is expecting and hoping for such incentives to also come in, say, for hydrogen electrolyzers, for offshore wind, for example, because those are also areas where future growth is seen. And therefore, manufacturing in India would have natural synergies. I'll also make one more point when we discuss the IPPs. A lot of these companies who were typically good at building and owning projects are now moving into manufacturing. And part of the reason is to secure their supply chain. But part of the reason is also that it's seen as the next opportunity. Companies that are looking for where is my next stage of growth coming from? How do I distinguish myself from peers? Recognize that perhaps manufacturing is the one that has a straight linkage with their current expertise. Now, if we're thinking about some of the things that are perhaps common reasons for delays to projects or certainly obstacles to cross, I'm wondering if India has this in common with other parts of the world. And one actually has to do with land constraints and permitting to where you're actually going to put these projects. Granted, we'll think that these are probably going to be integrated in with the auction schemes. But are there concerns regarding land use and how much space wind and solar may take up in India? I don't think it's as much about land use yet as it is about getting the land on time. So the issue in India is that land acquisition laws vary by each state and a lot of the land records may be fuzzy or not digitized. So typically land as a cost component is only 3% of a project. But when we speak to developers, to them, it is the biggest headache in the project development stage. So certainly getting land approvals on time or the government helping in some way will help accelerate the pace of renewables build out. And the other challenge, which is common to what is perhaps faced in Europe, is also the transmission grid. Now, the government has been far more proactive on that front. It has come out with clear plans on where the grid will be expanded in order to get the 500 gigawatts of green power that we mentioned. So that plan is already underway. But the challenge is, once you have the grid, you also need the project development, you also need the land acquisition all happening at the same time. So you need this sort of coordination between a lot of federal and local bodies in order to get this underway. There is an additional challenge in India, which is that we spoke of the auctions and the buyers of these auctions have been the power distribution companies. So they are the ones who offtake the power. And many of these offtakers are financially distressed. And so the distribution sector is also an area that needs reform to make it financially sustainable in the long run which also helps improve energy access for the end users. So that's again an area where the government has started to pay more attention. And it's also an area where we expect to see more progress being made. And the legal system, which can have a lot of red tape, because what you're referencing here regarding getting the land actually is filing the paperwork to get the land. Do you think that the legal system is reflecting the objectives stated by the government and all the... Basically, is the entire system actually wired to get these projects done on time or is it going to get slowed down? So that's a tough one because if you go to court, there's it's notorious for long delays. And then the government obviously has to be cognizant of the rights of the local communities, of people who may not have the right paperwork in place, but who have been occupants of the land for a while. So those are issues that are broader than just renewables. It's a sociopolitical matter in that sense. But... What is helping is a policy that India has had of having solar parks. So these are projects where the government acquires the land. It sort of creates a minimum framework of getting the plots ready, having it laid out flat, getting some water access, building some roads, and then auctioning it off. 
in the hope that once this land has been acquired and prepared, the risk of project development is much lower for the IPPs and therefore the projects will not get delayed and therefore the projects will be made in a manner that is more cost competitive. So the solar parks is one policy that has worked well and now they are trying to expand it to create renewable energy parks mixing solar and wind together. So that's another way in which the government is trying to work around this broader land issue in order to speed up renewables. Well, so thank you for explaining that. Final question, actually. And so Rohit, you live and breathe this and you look at this market and you look at these targets and the feasibility of actually reaching them. And let's think about the near term, because I'm not going to lie, I think 2070 feels a little bit far out to actually have a real stance on it one way or another. I will be a very old woman by that point. So if we're thinking between now and middle age version of me in 2030, do you think that India is going to reach the targets that they have stated? And I guess it's a, to put it a different way, are the targets ambitious or are the targets very attainable? I think you're very right in that 2070 is way too far away to say anything. 2030 is a very ambitious target because currently the non-fossil fuel capacity is about 170, 180 gigawatts and you want to get to 500 which is a near tripling in a matter of seven or eight years. Given that it is such a big task, why am I still optimistic is a couple of reasons. First, I think the government has demonstrated repeatedly its willingness to come out with new supportive policies, being flexible and innovative at the same time in order to see how it can remove roadblocks for the development of renewables. The second reason is there are a lot of announcements from companies, whether it's Indian companies, like you mentioned Adani, but also Reliance, which is the biggest listed Indian company. You have government-owned companies who have very big plans for the green transition and put that together with the investor focus on ESG and on decarbonization. So you have a sort of coming together of developers and of the financial world towards a certain target. And I also think that having a very big goal helps push all the stakeholders towards the few small steps that need to be taken frequently in order to get there. And that's where I think that 175 gigawatt goal for 2022, although one might say that you didn't get there, if you dive a little deeper, it's only the rooftop PV that didn't get there. If you look at utility scale solar, utility scale wind, you were quite nearly there. And so I think it isn't a matter of whether we will get 500 or 480. It's a matter of what direction you're going in and whether you're going uh, fast enough or at least faster than what you would have without the targets. And that's why I'm I'm quite happy that there is a big number that's been announced. It sets a marker for where you want to go. And therefore, we remain optimistic and excited. Well, if you're optimistic, then I will be optimistic. Rohit, first of all, thank you for joining us today. And secondly, I look forward to seeing you in person in August at BNF Summit in New Delhi. Excellent. It was great talking to you, Dana. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.